fulfilling these sacred obligations at the temple, they encountered a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was just an pious, he was a just and pious man, accepting? Come here, come help me. Anticipating the liberation of, liberation of Israel from her troubles. He was a man in touch with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had relieved to Simon, Simeon that he would not die before he had seen the, the Lord's anointed, anointed? Anointed. anointed one. The Spirit had led him to the temple that day, and there he saw the child Jesus in the arms of his parents who were fulfilling their sacred obligations. Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God. Now, Lord and King, you can let me, your humble servant, die in peace. You promised that I would see with my own eyes. What am I seeing now? Your freedom raised up in the... presence of all peoples. He is the light who reveals your message to the other nations, and he is your shining glory of your covenant people Israel. His father and mother were stunned to hear Simeon say these things. Simeon went on to bless them both, and to Mary in particular, he gave predictions. Simon, listen. This child will make many in Israel fall, rise and fall. He will be a significant person whom many will oppose. In the end, he will lay bare the secret thoughts, the secret thoughts of many hearts, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Mary. At this very moment, an elderly woman named Anna stepped forward. Anna was a prophet. What? Prophetess. Prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe, of the tribe Asher? Asher. She had been married for seven years before her husband died, and a window, widow, widow caught her current age of 84 years. She was deeply Devo. devoted to the Lord, constantly in the temple fasting and praying and praying when she got when she approached Mary Joseph and Jesus she began speaking out thanks to God she and she continued spreading the word about Jesus to all those who shared her hopes for the rescue of Jerusalem and my name is Elijah Get all settled here. Um, great. And Eli, thank you for reading that passage. Sorry for all the names. You did a great job. Um, so, good morning, Mago. Um, my name is Brian Holmes. I forget to do the introduction part, so that's who I am. Um, I work with the formation team here at Imago, and we're starting off our series on Lent this Sunday. And 
So we're gonna be kind of setting the stage for that and getting ready for the weeks to come. So we're gonna be focusing on the Gospel of Luke during this Lent season and kind of looking at that. So we're, I'm using Adam Hamilton's book along with that, Jesus and the Outsiders, Outcasts and Outlaws. So it's something you can be reading along if you want to, um, but you don't need to. It'll be kind of a framework, but really we're just gonna be focusing on the actual Gospel itself. So all the way through this Lent season, I just encourage you to spend some time in that gospel. See what you notice, what stands out to you. So we're going to do a little bit of background on Luke today. So sorry, again, the big Bible geek is going to throw a lot of stuff at you. But I think it helps us to understand the things that Luke is choosing to tell us and why he's choosing to tell us them. So with, uh, with this gospel, um, it's interesting. Anytime you look at any book in the Bible, the author and the date, there's always debate about whether it's true or not. And so different kinds of scholars approach it differently um, because Bible scholars are people too, and they have their own lens and they look at things their own way. So um, scholars that are more conservative tend to be very certain about who the author of the book was, and they tend to date the books much earlier. Um, scholars that are more academic tend to be a little more iffy on who is actually the author of the book. They give a lot more space to the anonymous natures of the book, and they also tend to date the books much later, too. So it's just a difference of perspective. Luke was the same way. Um, and again, it's interesting because when we look at the Gospels, even though they have men's names right on them, and we just always assume, of course, that's who it is, they're actually anonymous. They don't say in the Gospel of Luke, he never says, love, Luke, thanks for reading my letter. Here you go. Like, there's no definitive sign off. In fact, Luke's not even mentioned in his own gospel, nor is he mentioned in the book of Acts, which is the other book that he is attributed with. So um, pretty early on in the early church history, um, they said, though, that this book was written by Luke, and in particular, Dr. Luke, who was a, a friend and traveling companion of Paul. That's the one they associated with. Um, Arrhenius was the first one to make that connection in the second century. And again, Luke is mentioned throughout the New Testament as a companion to Paul, so we have lots to go along with that. Um, again, the debate is still out there. There's disagreement on whether it was actually that particular Luke who wrote this book. Um, when scholars look at the, and they compare these texts to the other books that Paul wrote, one of the problems is the way that um, Luke talks about events in Acts is often different than the way Paul talks about those same events in his letters to people. There's some discrepancies. Now, to be fair, right, we've all been at the party where two friends are telling the same story about the same event and they tell it totally differently. We know that happens, right? There can be different perspectives on it, but they've noticed that. Um, and they also, scholars also notice how the way that Paul's theology is explained in Acts by Luke is often different than the way Paul explains his own theology in his own letters later. There are some gaps there as well. Again, Paul's allowed to grow and change, right? So that could also be part of why there's differences. I just say all that because we have to remember with the Bible, there's so many things that we just accept of, of course, this is exactly true and everyone thinks that way, and it's not actually the case. There's a lot of debate about even things as simple as who wrote Luke. Was it really Luke? So anyway, so this kind of affects what we're looking at with that. Um, but again, if you look at when it was written, conservative scholars say about 60 AD was when the book of Luke was written. Um, academic scholars say between 80 and 110 AD, um, and some go even a little bit later than that, say it was still being revised and updated and changed. One of the things that's important is thinking about the author and the audience. So with Luke, no matter who it was, whether it was the doctor, Paul's buddy, or a different person, um, we do know some things about Luke because of the way that he wrote this book. So we know that he was well-educated. The Greek language in this book is the highest caliber of anything in the New Testament. It has a very sophisticated style, um, very high language. He uses a lot of medical terminology and notes things that a doctor would notice and pay attention to. 
He's obviously very influenced by Paul, even if it wasn't the one who traveled with it. You can tell that he was, had read a lot of Paul's work and was affected by it, much the same way that Mark was influenced by hanging out with Peter a lot, right? The um, people that you know the most affect what you say and how you say it. And this was certainly true for Luke. Luke was not a direct disciple. He did not hang out directly with Jesus, so he wasn't right there in the thick of things. But he obviously had connections to lots of people who were. So he very highly values firsthand accounts of what happened, and he got as close to the actual source as he could because he wanted this to be a very reliable source. So that was important to him. The book is also written, oh, and also, I didn't know this, um, Luke is a very prolific writer. If you count just the words written in the New Testament, um, Luke wrote 27% of the New Testament. That's the highest of anyone. It's more than Paul. Paul wrote 24%. So he has a lot to say about Jesus. And again, that matters when we look at his words, right? He had a message he wanted to share. He had lots of things to say about him. So the book is written to someone named Theophilus. Um, there's a lot of debate on who Theophilus is. That name directly translated could mean lover of God, friend of God. So some people feel like it was just a fill-in, like anyone down the road who ever reads this book, we're talking to you because you obviously love God because you're reading the Bible. So this is for you. A lot of scholars, though, think it was an actual person, probably a wealthy patron who helped was kind of bankrolling the whole Write the Gospel project um, for Luke. He also would have helped share this letter, right? When this kind of letter was sent, it wasn't just a, oh, here's a message just for you, don't tell anybody. It was, here's the thing I wrote, let people know about it. So they would have been a little bit of a book launch, and Theophilus would have had a big party, invited people over, and read this new thing that he'd heard from Luke. He would have been spreading the word about what was going on. There's debate. Some people think that Theophilus might have been a Roman official, although there's no real record of that. Some people feel like he was a well-educated um, wealthy Gentile, much like what Luke was. Um, the tone certainly matches that. It seems to be writing to someone of the, in that same station, so it could be. There's even a little a group of scholars that feel um, there's a um, high Jewish priest named Theophilus ben Anamas, who is um, high priest from 30, 37 to 41 AD, and they thought maybe that was him. Maybe he converted to Christianity, and Luke's talking to him. Um, we don't know. And does it matter? That's the big question, right? Does it matter who actually wrote it and who it was going to? I think it does. But it doesn't matter in the, oh, I have to have the right information way, and I have to be telling you the right thing so you get the right meaning way. I think it matters because when we think about who are we writing to and who is doing the writing, it helps us to look at a text differently, to pay attention. We notice nuances that we wouldn't care about otherwise. We pick up on things, the way that they worded something, the way that they included this story and not that story. We pay attention if we're thinking about who the author is and who the audience is. And especially if that's a perspective that we haven't had before, I think our senses are heightened, right? We notice more. So I always like when someone gives me a little more information about something and they're like, well, this could have been this person talking to this. I read the whole thing differently, even if I've seen that same text a million times before. So thinking about that does matter, not so much in the sense of, I wanna make sure that everybody knows this is exactly who Luke was. So no matter who Luke was, or who his audience was, he was definitely crossing lines with this book. Again, he was a well-educated um, Gentile who um, knew a lot. He was very sophisticated. And no matter who he was speaking to, he had to cross the line. If he was speaking to other well-educated Gentiles, um, he was the Jewish radical, right? He had fallen into this Jewish religion crazy thing that they'd have been hearing about, and he was speaking to people who didn't know what it was about. And he was kind of crossing that line to, to help them understand it. Maybe he was a well-educated Gentile who was talking to people in the Jewish culture who had, were struggling with this new idea of Christianity. And, and maybe that high priest idea was true, and he was speaking to that group. He had to cross the line to get there. Maybe he was a well-educated Gentile who was speaking to people thousands of years later 
that he knew would be picking up his words and reading them, and he wanted them to understand what Jesus was all about. He was crossing a big line there. He also could have been a well-educated Gentile with extensive training and knowledge of the faith, and he wanted to speak to people who did not have that extensive knowledge and training, people that had not grown up in the Jewish culture, did not know what some of these stories were about, who didn't have the advantages that he had of being super thoughtful, knowledgeable, experienced, all those things. I think that was a really important line that he was definitely trying to cross with this gospel. So when Luke is writing this gospel, he had choices to make, like all writers do, right? He had to think about, how am I going to put this together? So, for example, how do I start? What do I say first? So if you look at the other gospels, Mark starts off with a quote from Isaiah, tying you right back to the Jewish faith right away. Matthew starts with a genealogy. Look, Jesus is a legitimate Jew. See, look at his family tree. John makes a reference back to Genesis, right? In the beginning, going right back to the Genesis story. Luke starts with a dedication and a preface. It's a very Greek way to begin something that you want to say. This is what Luke says at the start of his gospel. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilling among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from the beginning who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I, too, decided, as one having a grasp of everything from the start, to write a well-ordered account for you, the most excellent Theophilus. I can only think of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure so that you might have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. Okay, so big fancy words, right? You can feel the tone right away. But basically what he's saying there is, I want you to understand what really happened. There's lots of stories going around. He talks about there's many accounts. And I want to pull all these accounts together. I want to take eyewitness accounts. I want to give you a very orderly laid out plan of what actually happened with this Jesus guy. I want you to understand and have confidence in this new faith that you are exploring and trying to figure out. Luke used lots of written sources. Um, the only gospel that's older than Luke is Mark. Um, and there is a lot of Mark directly quoted in Luke. In fact, Luke and Matthew both quote Mark verbatim in many sections. About 30% of Luke is directly quoted from Mark. He did um, abbreviate sometimes and tweak the language a little bit, but a lot of it is right in there. He also has another written source that we don't know about. Um, there's a lot that's true in Luke and Matthew, very parallel, same source. We just don't know what that source was. But he's drawing from lots of places. And again, he did talk to eyewitnesses and had firsthand accounts. I'm so curious who that was, though, because Luke tells stories that you wouldn't know if you weren't there. How does he know what the angel said to Mary? Did he talk to Mary? Was he, I, I picture him like peeking in the window, scribbling notes furiously. But like, how did he know those things? They were important. He wanted that information to be in there. And somehow he gathered those stories together. Now, it could have been kind of a Brothers Grimm situation, right? These stories have been told and retold, and he'd heard them lots of places, and he pulled them all together and put them into one place. That's very possible. We don't know for sure. He um, chooses to tell stories, though, in his gospel about individuals. It's very cool to see the way that he does this a little bit differently than some of the other gospels. So we don't always get their names, but there are over 100 different individual people in the gospel of Luke that he highlights. I mean, some we do know names. We know Zechariah and Elizabeth. We know Simeon and Anna that were in our scripture reading today. Herod, Joanna, the list goes on and on of people that are only mentioned in Luke. But there are also those individuals that Jesus healed or talked to or touched, right? We don't know their names, but they were an individual person that Jesus cared about. And Luke cared about putting their story into his book. He's also a huge fan of parables, his favorite thing. Luke has 24 total parables, more than any other gospel. And 18 of those are only in Luke. There's ones that he only picked to put in. Just as comparison, Matthew has 23 with 11 that are unique. Mark has eight parables and just two are unique. John has no parables, apparently not his jam. Didn't care about parables at all, so he just ignored them. But here's what I want us to do. I'm going to 
list off some of the unique parables that Luke chose to put in his gospel. Again, they don't show up anywhere else. I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of them. I want you to listen to those and see what do you notice about the kinds of parables that Luke chose to put in? Like what stands out to you about these kinds of stories? So here's like the, the quick, fast version. So he has the parable of that friend who bugs his neighbor for bread in the middle of the night because guests showed up and the friend doesn't want to, but he keeps asking and asking and asking and finally they give in and give him bread. So the annoying friend parable. The one about the rich man who builds bigger barns and then passes away and can't use any of his wealth. The parable of the fig tree, which I love because this is the parable where there's a fig tree that's going to be cut down and burned because it's not bearing any fruit. But the farmer begs for more time, says, give me a year, I'll take good care of it, and let's see if it bears fruit. This is very different than the Jesus cursing fig trees and killing them stories in the other Gospels. There's a parable of the crafty steward. He was the one who was going to get fired, and so he ran around to everyone who owed money and said, oh, you owe less now, and cut their debts so they would like him better when he got fired. There's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man had passed away and he wanted Lazarus to go back and warn his family. Um, there was the unjust judge, who again would not give justice to the widow until she begged and begged and begged and bothered him so much he finally gave in. The power of nagging, I guess, is that parable? There's a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee in the front of the church praying and showing off about how great he is, and the, and the um, tax collector's in the back beating his chest because he's so wicked, but the one who actually showed love for God. And the Good Samaritan, and the prodigal son. <laughs> Stories that we love, right? I did not realize they only show up in Luke out of all the Gospels. So when you hear those stories, and there's a lot of them, what stands out to you? What do you notice about the choices that Luke is making to put these stories in his Gospel? God is comfortable in the extremes. Thank you. Yeah, Jen. Say a little bit more about that. I like that. Yeah, so surprising expectations. What we thought was going to happen was not what happened. The people switched roles. Good. Yeah, Holly? Persistence. Ah, uh, persistence. That shows up a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. Anything else that stood out? Yes, you. Mm -hmm. It's true. So Sue said there's a lot of good Samaritans in the medical field for sure, and that fits Luke's life experience. Yeah. Good. Andy? Yeah, absolutely. So Manny's saying there's a whole flip where you think this is the good guy, this is the bad guy, and then it turns out to be the opposite. And how many times things are upended that way. Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, sometimes when we talk about biblical writers having intentions when they put their writing together, we want to be suspicious of that. Like, well, you shouldn't have your own agenda or your own intentions. You should just be a blank slate, and then God should just like grab the back of your head and squeeze it until the words come out of what he wants to say, right? I actually kind of love that writers are allowed to have intentions and purposes. I think it brings a human element to the story that's important, and I think the way that they are understanding God in that moment helps me to understand God better. Much better than if it was just some kind of generic thing that would be the same for everyone.
Now, again, in this case, Luke is writing as an upper-class educated person, but he chose stories of people who are not in that situation. How many of those parables were a character who did not have privilege, who did not have benefits, who did not have wisdom or money or resources, right? He noticed that, and he chose to put those stories into his gospel, and I love that. I think that was a very intentional choice on his part. It also is true when you look at some of the narratives that are in the story. Um, just Not parables, but just the stories, again, that he chose to tell. We know Jesus did so many things, you couldn't possibly have everything in your gospel. And so he made very specific choices. And again, there are ones that are stories that are only in his gospel and nowhere else. So again, really fast list. Listen to what he chose to put in. What do you notice? Okay. The whole entire Advent story is pretty much just in Luke. If you wanted to have Christmas programs, you could not have them without him because he's the one who told us all those details about Jesus' birth. He also talks about bringing the widow's son back to life. Um, having his feet washed by a woman's tears, traveling with the women who'd been healed from sickness and demons, sending out 72 followers to help and care for people in the world, visiting with Mary and Martha, healing a crippled woman on the Sabbath, healing a man with edema on the Sabbath, healing a Samaritan leper, meeting with Zacchaeus, weeping over Jerusalem, talking with the good and bad thieves on their crosses as when he was being crucified, and appearing to two followers on the road of Emmaus after he had been resurrected. Those are stories, again, that he chose to put in. What do you notice about those stories? What stands out to you? Andy? Very much valuing humanity and the individual. Thanks. Yeah, Ali? Yeah, absolutely. He's spending more time with the people that are shunned and pushed aside. Absolutely. Anything else you noticed? You pretty much gave my whole sermon, so good job. We're done. We can go now. But no, that's absolutely it. And that's why this stood out to me, right? Luke chooses stories from people that are oppressed, that are on the outskirts, that just don't have a lot of power or voice. Those are the voices that he chose to put into his gospel more than any others. And that, honestly, that's why we're looking at this book, right? That's why this is the focus for us in Lent. We value that too. That's important to us. And we're going to look at how that goes. So it's going to be, um, in the weeks that are coming up, Mandy and Pastor Melinda are going to be expanding more on some of those different groups and how they show up in the Gospel of Luke and the ways that Jesus interacted with them. And they're going to develop that and do some more things with that. Um, one of the things that is also unique in the um, Gospel of Luke is the Magnificat. That's the song that Mary sang after she found out she was going to be the mother of God. And then one of the phrases she uses there is, um, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. That's one of the lines that she uses. Now, the lowly there is a phrase, um, amhaharaz. It means the people of the land. And it's used lots of ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's just like the local governing body. But most of the time, it is a derogatory term. It's an insult. And it's a very divisive insult. It was a way that you separated the people with knowledge, who knew what was going on, the ones who were very devout and faithful, who went to temple, who did all the things they were supposed to do, you separated them from the riffraff, the people of the land, the people, they were, you know, kind of bumpkins, kind of ignoramuses. They didn't really know what was going on. Um, you know, God bless them. They couldn't help themselves, but they just don't know what's happening, right? And it was a way to separate those people out. And there was a lot of hostility across that separation both ways. 
the Pharisees in the first century often talked about the people of the land in very derogatory ways, the ones who didn't know better and pushed them aside. But also the people were not big fans of the Pharisees and being treated that way. There's a quote that I love. It's um, from the Jewish Encyclopedia and it's attributed to Rabbi Akiba. And he's talking about himself before he was trained as a rabbi and then after. And he says, um, when I was one of the uneducated, I used to say, give me one of the learned scribes that I may bite him like an ass. I love that. Hostility is flowing both ways, right? He's like, they think they're so great and they're not better than us, and then vice versa. It was very divisive. Again, Luke is trying to cross that line. He's trying to bring those two sides together and show that people matter, not just the educated well, people like him, right? Not just the people of influence like Luke. Everyone matters. And I think the fact that Jesus was spending so much time with those people is what drew Luke to Jesus in the first place. I know that's what drew us to Jesus, right? That's something that matters to us. So again, as this series goes on, Pastor Melinda and Mandy are going to expand on some of these other groups that were the lowly, that were the outcasts, the outlaws, the ones that were pushed aside. Um, the first chapter of that um, Adam Hamilton book we talked about is the one that's kind of the focus for today. And it was one of those funny things where you read the chapter and I think, I don't agree with you, Adam Hamilton. I don't think this chapter is actually accurate. So we're going to veer away from that and I'm going to tell you something a little different. And you can go back and read the chapter and see if you agree with him. What the point he's trying to make in this first chapter is he starts telling stories about the people um, at the beginning. Again, ones that are not anywhere else. He starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, their story was Zechariah was a priest in the temple. They um, did not have any children. They'd never been able to. The um, passage blames Elizabeth for this. They always blame the woman for this, right? And I don't know how they know that, but they say it's her fault. But anyway, that she's not able to have kids. They're both very old. They've been wanting to have a kid forever. Zechariah is in the temple, and an angel tells him, hey, you're going to have a baby. John the Baptist is going to be great. Zechariah doubts that. He asks questions. How can this be? And so he is struck dumb and cannot speak until the baby is born. So that's their, their story. Um, then Simeon, that we heard about in our scripture reading today, again, he was a pious man. He had been looking for the redemption of Israel, the consolation of Israel, for a long time, his whole life. He had wanted them to be brought back to a place of prominence, a place of peace. He had been um, working for that his whole life. He wanted that message of God's love to be for the people of Israel and also to spread out to the whole world. He was very close to the Holy Spirit and he had been promised at some point that he would not die before he saw the Savior. And we don't know when that promise was made, how long it was between the promise and this event, but he's been told that. The Spirit says, hey, go to the temple. Now's the day. He goes, he sees Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And then he gives the blessing that we heard in our scripture reading. Anna was another person they talk about now, again, we know not a whole lot about her, except she'd been married for seven years and then was a widow the rest of her life, and she was 84 now. She never left the temple. She fasted and prayed. She worked with people. She was blessing people all the time. And she also had been waiting for Israel to be redeemed, like so many of the Jewish people, right? She had been longing for this to happen, for God to come in and save them all. And, again, she was in the temple. Baby Jesus was there, and she knew somehow that that was the answer she'd been looking for. So again, in the book, when he looks at these four people, he's starting to talk about how they are all older, which is true, they are. And he spends a lot of time talking about how in our culture today, when you get older after a certain point, you are seen as less valuable and pushed off to the side. And I also agree that in our culture, that is true. If you don't look like the young faces on TV, you often start to feel second best. He went on a long time about Tom Brady. It was a very interesting sidetrack he did. But, <laughs> Talking about how, you know, you get older, you cannot help that, right? And in some ways, that is a marginalized group that we will all, hopefully, enter, right? We hope, want to live long enough to be older, right? 
But when I looked at these stories, I kept thinking age wasn't the barrier for these people. Like no one was saying to Elizabeth, you're so old, haha. They were sad because she didn't have a baby, right? Nobody was looking at Anna and saying, hey, you old wacko, get out of our temple. See, they weren't being treated as less. And in fact, in um, first century Jewish culture, the elderly were revered. If someone over 60 came into a room, everyone was expected to stand, to recognize them, right? Now again, our culture is definitely different, and that's something for us to look at today, right? It's a shift. But when I look at these people, I kept thinking, I don't feel like that was the issue. I mean, two of these men were respected elders in their community. They were not pushed to the side the way that other people we're going to talk about are. But when I looked at these people, they did have burdens that they were carrying. Each one of them had been carrying something really painful for a really long time. They had, had to wait for something that they wanted, and they didn't have the power on their own to get that thing they wanted. They couldn't make the child happen on their own, apparently. They couldn't make the Messiah appear. They couldn't redeem Jerusalem. The things that they longed for, they didn't have the power to make that happen. And I think we can relate to that, right? I think we all have had experiences like that where there's that thing that we really want to happen and we are powerless to actually make it happen. And we have to do what they did. We have to wait. We look at the way that they responded to their situation, right? They had to have patience. Again, all four of these people in this example are older. They have been waiting a really long time for these things to come to fruition. They had to hang on and persist in that hope. They also had to show up, though. They were not passive people. They were not just sitting in the back, um, waiting, with, you know, sipping a drink, hoping that something good was going to happen. They were all active. They were all doing what they needed to do. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth kept praying, and they kept doing what you got to do to have a baby. They kept going, even though they were very old. They didn't give up on that. Anna was serving people in the temple her whole life. Simeon was in the community helping people his whole life. They weren't passively just sitting back and saying, well, whenever God does it, it'll happen. They were still moving into that promise. They were still being active parts of it. They were showing up. Now, what I love about their stories is God saw those struggles, and he knew those things that they wanted. He saw them, and also Luke saw them. He had heard their stories, and he valued them. He wanted them to be a part of his gospel. He put them in. The struggles of individual people that were dealing with a lot of pain. So when we see these stories, one of the things that stands out, too, is that they all got different endings, right? Elizabeth and Zechariah, they got the baby they'd been wanting for all those years. Elizabeth was thrilled. She was so thankful to God that that had been lifted from them. And they got this happy ending right away that they could hold in their hands. For Simeon and Anna, they just got a glimpse of what they were hoping was going to happen. They saw it in the form of Jesus, pretty amazing, right? But they didn't see Jerusalem actually raised up. They didn't see the whole world saved like they were hoping for. They just saw the key that was going to make that happen. So theirs was a little bit different. They were so grateful. They were overjoyed with that, right? But we don't always get the same answer to the burdens that we're carrying, right? Some of us get the big, wonderful ending we were hoping for. Some of us get something that is different than what we expected. I don't think Simeon was expecting a baby to show up and answer his prayers, right? But he did. So for all of us, there are things that we are looking for, right? Hoping for that we can't guarantee on our own. It could be security or health or peace. It could be a relationship. It could just be hope or freedom from pain. There's a million different things. And it's easy for us when we look at those issues to feel like they're just too small. When we look at the bigger issues that the world faces, the big issues of people that are on the margins that we talk about here a lot that are really, really important, it's easy for us to diminish our own 
struggle, our own story. Say, that doesn't really matter. You know, world hunger, that's the stuff that God cares about, not me being sad, not the small thing, right? I think Luke speaks, and Jesus speaks, exactly against that. They valued those small stories, too. Now, they told both, right? We hear about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus healing one woman. Both those stories are in the gospel together. They both matter. They both have value. So as we're moving through this Lent season and time, as we're thinking about these issues, we're going to be trying to think about both those things. We want to be watching, as always, for people on the margins that don't have a voice, that need to be supported and loved and protected and lifted up. And we're going to be always watching for that. And we spur each other on to that, right? We help each other to be looking for those people and looking for ways that we can um, stand with them and help them. And we also can pay attention to the things that hurt us, our own burdens. It might come because we are a part of a marginalized group. That is absolutely true. It could come from other places too, but where we have those things that we are desperately wanting, but we are not able to get. Both those things are seen by God. Both those things matter to God. They're included in scriptures because they matter to God. So we want to remember both those things and have that balance. So as we are looking at these examples and we're thinking for ourselves, how do we move forward in this Lent series? There's some things we're going to need, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon needed. We are going to need patience because things are not going to happen on our timetable or our schedule. We're going to need to show up and do the work. We can't sit back passively and expect things just to happen. We're going to keep moving and serving and showing love as much as we can to people. We're going to have to keep watching for the outcasts and finding ways to lift them up, not letting go of that important mission. And we got to remember that we are part of a bigger story. There's a story that started way before us, way back before Luke. That story continued long before them. It wrapped around Jesus. It wrapped around Luke. It wraps around us today. And then it flows forward to whatever is happening next. We are a part of that bigger story. That big story matters. So the part that you play in that story is beautiful and it matters. To Luke and to Jesus and to God and to all of us. We're going to um, continue today with some words of affirmation, a little affirmation of faith. So we're going to say these together. Right. With all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of my soul, I will rejoice in God my Savior. God has looked with favor on those of low status. The Mighty One has done great things for us. God shows mercy to everyone, from one generation to the next. God scatters those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations and welcomes sinners and outcasts. God pulls the powerful down from their thrones and lifts up the lowly. God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty-handed. There is rejoicing in heaven when sinners repent, when those who are lost have been found. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost.